Hello and welcome to The Spirits of the Law, a podcast for those who find themselves called to the bar. I'm Matthew Naylor, your host, and I am joined, as always, by the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group, uh, someone who is perplexingly named Sarah Lehman himself. (laughs) Hello, Sarah. Hello. And, of course, our guest today is a fundraiser, an events manager, uh, and one of my dear friends, Andrew Forschner. Hello, Andrew. Nice to be here, Matthew. Uh, Andrew currently is the development director for the Vancouver Writers Festival uh, and has also worked for a number of other organizations, charitable organizations in the province, including Variety Children's Charities. So, we are going to talk about events. Now, this has been in the news a little bit recently with the Vancouver Park Board deciding to ask the 420 protest to cancel the Cypress Hill concert. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I really love it when the news is itself the punchline. It's just just nonsense. But we're going to talk to you about, like, what the cannabis licensing regime is right now, uh, why you can't have cannabis and liquor at the same event, why you can't sell cannabis at events, uh, and why the 420 protest is still basically a protest. Mm-hmm. If you uh, listen mm-hmm. to one of our sister podcasts, the Camby Report, I uh, have, since we recorded on Tuesday, changed my position because Sarah convinced me. <laughs> uh, Yay! <laughs> I'm so good at that. But we will, we will get to that in a moment. First, of course, uh, seeing as how we are dealing with some herb today, uh, we're going to be drinking something with some other natural botanicals in it. Flower power. Yeah, an herbal essence. This one in particular is the Tufino Distillery's Rose Hibiscus Gin. Now, a a gin is a... a liquor that is flavored by 50% juniper berries, and in this particular instance, uh, also rose and hibiscus. Yeah, I actually bought this while I was in Tofino for the first time around my birthday this year, and I had a chance to stop by the Tofino Distillery. It's really, really cute. It's right beside a really delicious bakery, too. So if anyone's in Tofino, check it out. Definitely get some baked goods and some gin. But they had all kinds of different varieties. These two are the newest ones. Um, they just launched them, and they're available in limited quantities. And my understanding is they're also going to be doing whiskeys. So the Tofino Distillery is going to be releasing some whiskeys in a few years. They've invested a whole bunch of time and resources into it, so keep your eye on it. But I selected the two flower-flavored um, versions of their gin. So today we're going to be trying the rose hibiscus, as Matthew mentioned, and we're also going to try the lavender mint, and then we can decide which flower really holds the power. Long-time listeners of the, uh, <laughs> of, of the Spirit of the Law podcast will know, you know, uh, that a Canadian whiskey must be aged three years uh, in order to qualify as a whiskey, uh, which is much, much shorter than a scotch uh, but it is still a rather long time. Uh, Tofino also sells a espresso vodka, which uh, I have not tried because I think coffee and booze is gross. Well, I tried it when I was there, yeah. and I can tell you that it's quite good. It's a good one. Right. Um, 
And there's also a uh, gin that's flavored with jalapeno, and that one is delicious. They did a cocktail with it that had mango juice and a jalapeno gin. It was so good. I was going to buy another bottle of it, but then, uh, you know, of course, ration, like rationality got the best of me. So here we go. We're going to get some tonic water to add in here with our gin. Would you like any? Okay, there we are. Um, I'm excited. I've been meaning to try this since uh, they had talked about it at the BC Distilled Festival, but did not have it in stock. Well, perfect. Well, cheers. cheers. And let's see what we think about the rose hibiscus. The hibiscus is definitely the more powerful note to yeah, this one. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, juniper, uh, rose, whatever. Mm. It's hibiscus. It tastes like the... Uh, the like hibiscus lemonade that Starbucks has a little bit like yeah yeah, yeah not not a fan uh for a rose based gin look at Okanagan spirits they do oh. it based with um, dry rose petals oh. and spruce or in pine barrels very nice and the rose comes through okay Much well we're gonna have that. to try that and I think maybe on another episode yeah. Definitely. One one of the things that I find about rose as a flavor is that it's very, like, it's very delicate and very easy to overwhelm. Like, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a creamy mm -hmm. and, and certainly, like, powerful flavor. If you've ever had rose water, it's, like, very distinctive. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Western culinary traditions, rose kind of fell out of fashion around 1700 and mm -hmm. just never came back for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Mm -hmm. uh, you gotta look to Persian cooking if you want to do. Yes, rose. absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's why I go to the Persian foods near my house and I get a, a packet of the rose faluda, uh, which is like a parfait. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, drink your apparently. Not great beverage. I really like hibiscus, so I'm 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 all about this. But, yeah, I mean yeah. I can definitely drink this, and I will drink it again, and I will definitely drink the bottle I have here, um, probably until I'm done it, which mm -hmm. won't take that long. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but we'll see how it stacks up against the lavender mint at the end of the day. So, cannabis SOLs. You've run a number of SOLs. I, I've had uh, a yes. couple to my name as well. You need a serving it right license. Uh, there is no splipping it right license at, at, at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I think some are calling it puff puffs in Ontario, but no, that do not exist here. Oh goodness! <laughs> I don't I don't know whether to blame Win or Ford for this, but that's awful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a very much puff puff pass from me. Anyway, a failure to regulate on the part of the BC government. Why? Don't they do this? So, uh, our festival runs the third week of October. So this year we ran the day of legalization, mm. and would very and had themed events on weed and its impacts in literature, which are a lot. Mm -hmm. And people were engaged or interested in smoking at the events, mm -hmm. uh, especially that event in which people were definitely smoking <laughs> outside of the venue, but nowhere in which we could legitimately or legally provide them safe space in which to do so, or safe space in which to provide them legal uh, marijuana. As you know, you can't actually get in person in Vancouver regardless. Mm -hmm. So it is, I think, tied right now when I, when I speak to the ministry, they're very clear about 
well, just not right now. And they keep saying, not right now, but later, not right now, but later. And it gives me kind of a sense that they don't care about this aspect of it, no, both the sale and the consumption aspects, which are definitely behind the times of a, a legal administration. And when you say the ministry, you mean the Ministry of Justice, right? This yeah. is under EB's, mm -hmm. David EB's uh, ambit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is, it's, it's really interesting because I speak at a lot of different um, ILEA events. Um, which is great. I love Ilea. I love going to their events. They always have delicious food and drinks and everything. And a lot of people who attend those are really interested in putting on cannabis events. So we get a lot of questions about what can we do legally, what can we not do legally. And I mean, as the lawyer there, I'm always the downer at the party <laughs> being like, well, you can't really do anything <laughs> legally. You know, I guess you can sell tickets to an event. Maybe you can talk about cannabis, you know, but you definitely can't sell it to people, you can't include it in a ticket price, you can't allow people to consume maybe on your premises unless they're private or you're licensed, but you can't even get licensed. Like, it's really, really going to be difficult. But we know these events are happening. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. They're in the city. People are doing cannabis events. There's lots of infused dining events. There's lots of, you know, um, educational workshops and series like that. So And this is a huge liability. Like, they're exposing themselves to a ton of liability major. by not having uh, a, a licensed event. Yep. As a brief aside, uh, you said talk about things. And one thing as I was researching this story mm -hmm. I noticed was that every single story that dealt with cannabis, including one on, like, a parks board vote, which mm -hmm. we will get to, uh, had a are you 19 age, mm -hmm. you know, age 19 yeah. or above. Yes. Like. You have to click through now as though it's like graphic pornography to read Cannabis Conference. Yeah. With even content. comments on the Georgia Strait. It was ridiculous. Yes. Like, yes. It should be public spaces, especially because we do want to educate those who are under the age of 19 who might be consuming or are consuming cannabis in other ways. Absolutely. And I mean, we don't have to click through when we're looking at articles about scotch or, you know, rose flavored gin so it's funny that there's a double standard created there when it mm -hmm. comes to the age of education yeah. <laughs> and, it's not, and, and to be clear it's not like you know seth rogan's cannabis company like their web page is is age locked i mean it is age locked but uh this is like a news source the daily hive georgia yes. Strait. Yeah. all of these places have age locked content which uh, for, I mean, to me, it sounds like a violation of our, our right to speak to people. Like, like Agreed. It's, it's yeah, this is on news articles. I think it's an important thing to point out, and I'm sure lots of our listeners know about this already. I'm sure you've encountered it already if you're on the internet and just clicking through on news sources, but it's not like we're looking at pictures of, you know, babes and blunts, right? Yeah. You're not allowed to find out what your government is doing because your government is doing something related to cannabis and you're under 19. Yeah, yeah. strange stuff. So, we're, we're getting uh, around to the 420 protest. That was the article that, that like really bothered me because it, it was uh, age-locked and it is about like the Vancouver Park Board and it's not like people under 19 don't have an interest in the administration of their parks. They pay taxes in the city, they pay fees in the city, uh, and they use the park spaces, and so they have every right uh, to know, you know, in lieu of voting, they have every right to know what their park board is doing with their money for their parks. In particular, uh, they're going to try and ask Cypress Hill not to come. 
they're going to try, they're yeah. going to fail. How do you politely ask Cypress Hill not to come? <laughs> yeah, I did like part of the debate in that, in that Parks Board meeting was, should we just cancel 420, which uh, really came down to, well, are we going to have the police just stand outside and stop anyone the 40,000 people are going to show up from getting in? Oh, good luck. Because it's not a licensed event, it's not a... Uh, uh, authorized event. It's just a collection of people coming, setting up tables, and and going and having fun. Setting so up tables that have been organized and charged for by a central authority mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is, however, protesting. So let's yeah. let's actually talk. Let's actually talk about this distinction. Is the 420 event, as it stands right now, a protest? And I, I will preface this by saying that a couple of days ago, I was thinking, you won. Congratulations, guys. Now you have to like abide by the rest of the rules. Uh, and and I had a conversation with you, Sarah, yesterday that uh, reversed my position effectively. So uh, yeah, I mean, and this is this is a big you know central facet of the debate of whether or not 420 is still relevant um, because it started out back in like I believe it was the 1970s somewhere in the states I think California is where the first 420 happened and it was in protest of you know, the prohibition and all kinds of criminal laws against um, cannabis. So now that we have legal cannabis, is 420 still relevant in Canada? I mean, my answer to that is that, yes, it is still relevant because the decriminalization of cannabis in Canada has been really leaving a lot to be desired. In fact, a lot of people are calling it, you know, not decriminalization or legalization, but rather uh, criminalization 2.0. So it's just a different way that now we're criminalizing cannabis and cannabis users. It's not actually making um, cannabis legal um, or, you know, making access uh, more fair, more just. People are still being prosecuted um, under these laws. And we have to remember that, of course, you know, we still have 40 odd criminal offenses under the mm-hmm. Cannabis Act that you can be prosecuted for, and you can have significant penalties, including huge amounts of jail time. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I want to specifically highlight one of them. Uh, the first person to be prosecuted under uh, cannabis laws after legalization was a, a man by the name of uh, Rodney Clayton Felix, whose last name means luck in Latin. Um, <laughs> and he's a 31-year-old Anishinaabe man uh, in Manitoba who has been sentenced to 10 months in jail. Uh, for possessing 86 grams of cannabis, uh, a grinder, and a scale. Right. I mean, is this legalization? It's not legalization the way that we think about it in popular culture, you know? Um, It's it's really still not legal. There's so many rules Mm -hmm. around cannabis, what you can, what you can't do, that, you know, when I give public presentations about cannabis, um, you know, I always say it's legal ish you know so you have to watch yourself you could still be charged you could still face some pretty hefty penalties depending on what you're doing and also depending on who you are Mm -hmm. yeah and it's a a penalty to the impoverished it's a penalty to if you don't have a credit card in bc if you don't Mm -hmm. have a credit card and you don't have a permanent residence the only way you can acquire cannabis is through illegal means or gray area means because you can't go through the site the BC Cannabis site without right. those two means. So that's a problem. Absolutely. That it absolutely requires continued protest, and 420 has that value. Yeah, it does. I mean, we have to remember that the prohibition against pot, you know, and the enforcement of the prohibition against pot has been largely racist. It's classist. 
There's all kinds of problems around how these laws were enforced. We see people of First Nations descent being disproportionately targeted by police and charged with cannabis offenses and receiving harsher sentences. It should be of absolutely no surprise that the first person to be prosecuted under uh, the legalization, mm-hmm. in air quotes, regime uh, was a First Nations person. Absolutely. Like, as, as many people have joked about, uh, for white or white-passing people, mm-hmm. it's, it's basically legal and has been for decades, mm-hmm. but uh, for, for people of color, it is not. Exactly. And it's a, it's a big, big problem. And it's particularly a problem when we see that we have the government and huge licensed LPs who are making big bucks on this, while people like Mr. Felix are spending time in jail. Yeah. So, like, let, let's take a look at the 420 protest, because, you know, the objection was uh, last year that they caused a ton of damage to the grass. Ton damage yes. to the grass. Well, which is, which is very ironic and quite hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, the objection was still the grass. Okay, so let's just point that out. Throws the biscuit. It's everywhere. Oh my god. Well, that's an edit out. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> no, uh, and so basically, the objection was. One, cleanup costs and grass damage were substantial after the mm-hmm. 420 protest. However, for another free event, uh, one that was sanctioned but like doesn't have a uh, admission fee, a, admission fee, yeah. and, and doesn't have a like even defined public viewing area. Yeah. <laughs> Celebration of light. Uh, I, I'm just going to say that the amount of dogs that were stabbed at the Celebration of Light was infinitely more than the amount of dogs that were stabbed at the 420 protest. Mm-hmm. Wait, dogs were stabbed? There was a one. There was a, a dog that was stabbed last year at the Celebration of Light. Oh uh, my goodness. There were several stabbings at the uh, Celebration of Light, several people and one dog. Well, human stabbings never surprised yeah. me, but dog stabbings, that's yeah. new. Yeah, I don't exactly know uh, <laughs> why that happened. Oh and, my. But, like, you know, stoners are not a violent no. bunch. No. They're the opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of relax into the couch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many people got stabbed at 420 last year? Zero. How many animals? Zero. Okay, well, there we go. We're already better than Celebration of Light. Yes. <laughs> so, like, if we're going to have these kind of events, and I think we should have these kind of events, because, like, Vancouver has very much earned the title No Fun City. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have got to accept that we are going to have to, like, clean up afterwards. Not even that. I would say what we talked about earlier about the fact that there are no cannabis events or legalization or legitimate mm-hmm. events, mm-hmm. that there is a way that the Parks Board can cover the costs of this just by advocating for the province to allow them to have special cannabis licenses mm-hmm. and all the vendors down there actually paying a fee to be there and all the money that they collect would pay for the damage that they have. But instead, rather than go to the government and legitimize this event and make money off of that event, they're just going to let it happen and try and shut it down. And that's not the right approach. No, absolutely not. So you mentioned uh, a little phrase there, the special cannabis license. Mm -hmm. This would mirror something like a special occasion license. And surprisingly, uh, it does work. There are places that uh, this licensing regime exists. One of them is California, and the other one is that we're going to talk about today is Calgary. Yeah. So uh, why don't we start with Calgary? So with Calgary, they're not able to... So I'll take a step back. 
in BC, special occasion now called special event permits are a way in which uh, to be revenue neutral and allow individuals to uh, consume alcohol in one-off area, area. So like during a wedding or a family gathering and for nonprofits who were able, like myself, who were able to get a product donated, they can raise money through the funds that they raise through there. First problem that encounters BC is that you, we can't actually have any marketing for pop because it, the Cannabis Act makes any marketing of the brands of cannabis companies or promoting the products of cannabis companies illegal. Mm-hmm. Our ability to get free product and make profit off of that is, 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 is dampered. So what mm-hmm. they've done in Calgary isn't the ability to sell at their events. They've allowed festivals to essentially apply for a license to allow people to consume in select areas. Um, that are cordoned off, you have to be a certain age to be there, but essentially a place in which they can consume cannabis in a legal sense at, at festivals and events. It's not an ideal, but it, until the Cannabis Act amends its marketing aspect, it's not really going to be a value to, to BC. So, like, Calgary, uh, rather, not Calgary, California has a similar regime, and it's like an, it's in like an onerous and restrictive license. Like, I, I won't, I won't mm-hmm. say that it's like, you know, throwing joints out from the stage or anything like that. It's saying that you have to have a special cannabis event license. You need, uh, if you want to sell the cannabis, you need a separate cannabis vendor's license. Uh, you need to have this event cordoned off, uh, age checked, and you need to have it not visible from anywhere that a under 21 year old can see it, which to me, just sounds <laughs> like an invitation to create a hot box tent. But, yeah, I'm uh, yeah, not. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm, is. I very much think that the open air uh, situation would be preferable there, but like, <laughs> whatever, California, you do you. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, it is miles and miles, or kilometers and kilometers, depending on which side of the border we're on, uh, beyond what BC has managed to achieve. Why is this? Like what? What? What kind of regulatory process did the the first the BC Liberals like, and then the NDP uh, embark on since cannabis was like legalized? Uh, you know, it was effectively yeah. legalized a couple of years ago when they announced that the the law was going to be changing, and mm-hmm. they had all this time mm-hmm. to come up with a regulatory regime, and they came up with. Something that mirrored our alcohol laws in yeah. the 1930s? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I, from my perspective is they're still not even able to figure out how to do a bricks and mortar approach to legal cannabis sales. That events are gonna, and one-offs are going to be distant after that. So once we can actually have stores that are selling legally in the city of Vancouver and other municipalities, that's, I think, the first impetus. Because a lot of the special events are about those stores marketing themselves. Right. Uh, again, until we actually amend the law and the marketing aspect of the Cannabis Act, it's going to be problematic for these uh, event licenses to do that. And I know later we're going to be talking about like the, the liquor regimes in, in BC, but one of the things about liquor in BC or one-off events selling liquor in BC is they're meant to be revenue neutral. They're not meant to be profit-seeking. Right. And that makes them very hard to do when you can't market that company and say, thank you for this donation, we're going to market you for supporting us and that's how we raise funds and that's why we'll do them. But if essentially no one's able to make any money off one-off events, 
you're not going to see them doing legitimate 420s when they can just do an illegitimate 420 protest and maybe make a little bit of money, although then, you know, destroying a park. Yeah. Now, I mean, I have a question here about this, though, because if Calgary has adopted basically what's a BYOP approach, mm-hmm. so bring your own pot, smoke it in a cordoned off area, and they can award a permit in order for that to happen, what's stopping BC from doing the exact same thing? Nothing is stopping BC, just the fact that we're slow and we essentially okay. don't really care about pot legalization as much as other, other jurisdictions do. Um, but the second is, and I see this a lot talking to people in Ontario, mm-hmm. is Ontario has a similar sort of law as Calgary, a little slower to get anyone to actually uptake because the risk, as you said, with there's a lot of, uh, with the Cannabis Act, people are actually being pursued by it, is the risk of organizations to even allow that uh, cordoned off area for consumption is if you break it, so someone under the age of 20 goes mm-hmm. in, the fines are incredibly high under the Cannabis Act. So yes. Even higher than the BC like regulations for liquor. So the reward is, is non-existent because there's no financial reward. It's only providing people with an experience, and the risk is quite high. Right. And, and, I mean, we can have a whole other conversation about how ridiculous the marketing and advertising restrictions around cannabis are, because they are. They are so prohibitive that it's almost impossible for anybody to market their product or anything associated with cannabis. I just don't know how they can do it. So, I, I actually want to talk a little bit about how BC, I think, has two attitudes towards liquor and cannabis. And I think that... BC is allowing, very dangerously, its attitude towards cannabis to slouch into its attitude towards liquor. Because BC was very proud, for many, many years, of the laws honored in the breach. Mm -hmm. Like the the fact that uh, stores in Vancouver, that that people, growers, uh, grow-ups, consumers, would all just flout the law with basic impunity. for, especially in Vancouver, but around the province. Absolutely. BC mm-hmm. Bud is world famous. Yeah. Yes. And that is in stark contrast to like our attitude t- towards alcohol, where, and, you know, both you and I have, uh, Andrew, have, have run a number of like licensed events, and I volunteer at the Vancouver Folk Festival uh, every year. And one of the things that is just like total nonsense is, is how people will, because the regulatory regime is so strict, will just invent regulations for themselves. Yeah. Like, they will restrict themselves uh, just like the ghost of Michel Foucault is standing right behind them saying, like, you are your own oppressor. And we're like, yes, sir. And we will not tell people more than two beers at any given time. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I really think that, like, our, our very libertine and libertarian attitude towards cannabis uh, because the laws were stupid, we were just going to ignore them as if they didn't exist, uh, is is in danger of slouching into our attitude towards liquor, which is create laws for ourselves, uh, like just have it so restrictive as to be uh, just a giant pain in the ass. Absolutely. The pendulum has swung so far from one direction to the other under the, ironically, the guise of legalization. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so funny. But it's not funny because it really sucks. Yeah. How, did, yeah. how did on October, it was October 15th, October 17th, mm-hmm. um, on that day, cannabis became way less accessible. Oh, than yeah. Yes, yeah, so like, much more. It was brutal. Absolutely. But speaking of cannabis and liquor, perhaps we should get into our 
second. Yes. Second batch of gin here. Um, this is the lavender mint. So I'll pour up some glasses for us, and we can see what we think about this one. This is again from Tofino Brewing. Uh, Tofino Distillery. Tofino Distillery. Yes. Thank you. Well done. Yeah. Do we need tonic, tonic water? Uh, yeah, I'll go grab us some soda water. I, I'm not a big tonic fan because it's sweet and it overwhelms the flavor. Okay. Alright. Well, this one is uh, not my favorite compared to the other. It tastes like sage. Yeah. I oh, like yeah. it. I That's, love it, actually. But you know give what? it a sage, it's nice. Yeah, I'm like, I, don't, I don't know how lavender and mint, how together they taste neither like lavender nor mint. There's no. Like, yeah, no mint in there. But I like sage. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm getting no yeah. lavender, I'm getting no mint. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what I'm getting, I'm, actually. I'm getting a lot of lavender, but like, yeah, it's combined I, with sage. I get lavender in the, the smell. Yeah, I definitely smell the lavender, but Blue I don't dilly dilly. taste it. <laughs> It's so it's a deep, it's a very deep, 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 deep Disney cut. <laughs> um, I get I get a little if you like have a, a sharp inhale, you get a little bit of a, a mint. Yeah, a touch of mint. Yeah, yeah. A hint of mint. A hint of mint, but room for improvement, if you know. Yes, I, I would say this this one is a room for improvement spirit. I, I I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little boosterish. But like, there's a there's a disconnect between the marketing of it as a lavender mint thing and then a uh, a sage aficionados beverage because it doesn't <laughs> it does taste like sage. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hold our judgments to the very end and keep everyone in suspense. Yes. So, uh, for those of you who are looking for some sage advice on. <laughs> Liquor uh, events, perhaps we can turn to a little bit of history. Why were all our liquor laws written a hundred years ago? They're truly horrible. I think the better question is why haven't they been updated since, till what, two years ago? And even then, that's not great. It, it's, a little, it's a little longer than two years ago, but I will, I'll give a little bit of history. So, mm -hmm. BC went through Prohibition. Um, Prohibition in Canada was always like less onerous than it was in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, especially since we decided that we were going to make all of the U.S.'s liquor, mm -hmm. even though we weren't going to allow ourselves to drink it. <laughs> we still manufacture the spirituous liquors in Canada. We weren't allowed to drink them, except in certain circumstances. It was always, always, always very much a, a gray, semi-porous membrane. Mm -hmm. uh, but those prohibition laws, when they were repealed, effectively were our liquor laws from like on or about 1935 through to 2010. <laughs> That's a great lifespan for a law, any law really, but mm -hmm. liquor laws particularly. Yeah. Yeah, and what is it now? We still have the most onerous liquor laws in the world, except for areas that have essential prohibition. 
to Morocco. Somewhere close to that. Yeah, yeah, Morocco, <laughs> Iran, uh, some parts of Alabama. Right. Actually, where Jack Daniels is produced. Uh, it's worth Dry it. County. Okay. Oh, yeah, that, that, you know, the Maker's Mark, like that good whiskey from the, the creek where Lincoln was born, That that uh, that's Dry County, yeah. apparently. Mm. Um, mm. So you have to go to the tasting room, which is in the next county over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, we cannot claim to be much better, uh, because we, despite having a very thriving craft brewing industry, uh, a, a very, uh, developed wine region that is in fact certified by the Vintners Quality Association under the VQA designations, uh, for the Okanagan, uh, and a, a growing spirits industry in British Columbia. Uh, one that, that contributes roughly the same amount of money to, like, it's like one or two percent of our our GDP in British Columbia mm-hmm. is, yeah, is crap beer alone, which is like mm-hmm. substantial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow we managed to just have like very, very brutally and, and onerously restrictive laws on liquor. Why? is this. So we tried liquor reform. We tried liquor reform in 2011. Uh, John Yap, the former Minister of Multiculturalism and at that point Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice for liquor reform, embarked on a very long and very comprehensive uh, review of our liquor policies, came back with the the beautiful number, 73 recommendations. to Suzanne Anton, the then Attorney General, and it did not go super well. Somehow, <laughs> somehow, uh, instead of actually treating this as a serious policy problem that affects somewhere between 1 and 5% of our GDP, uh, the Christie Clark Liberals saw this as a way to manipulate the news cycle. Uh, I was working for an MLA at the time, and I remember every time there was a very, very bad news day, like the day that the BC, Utility, uh, the BC Utilities Commission decided that they were going to raise hydro rates or approve a uh, hydro rate increase, uh, for some reason, on a Thursday, Thursday evening, an announcement would pop up saying that there was going to be uh, a policy change for liquor that would dominate the Friday <laughs> news and allow people to talk about the liquor policy change on the weekend rather than the hike in hydro rate. <laughs> Which is altogether unsurprising. It's unsurprising, <laughs> but it's just like the most mm-hmm. like repulsively cynical thing that politics can put forward. Like, why, why do good policy to distract from other good policy that is somewhat, like, annoying to people. But are we even getting good policy? Did we get good policy? I mean, the liquor laws in B.C. are still so, so ridiculous. Oh, they're terrible. They're antiquated, and they solve none of the problems. So one of the issues that I always come across is that the B.C. Center for Substance Abuse has a lot of political clout in the city. It's it's a leading thought, it's a thought leader in substance abuse research in the world, and unfortunately has the ear of everyone who has been on the Liberal Party and the NDP Party that 
to the extent that anytime we say let's loosen the liquor laws, they come up with, well, it's going to cause this many more problems or this many more deaths. And they're not wrong that use will go up, but they're completely ignoring the fact that uh, the regime that we currently have drives people underground, which results in this, like, everyone's done pre-drinking before they go to bars, or, mm-hmm. or much more unsafe ways of consuming alcohol and not realizing that we can have effective liquor reform that makes it safer for people. So what, in your opinion, is the worst liquor law on the books right now? So many. Okay, maybe we can from. maybe we can actually, do a top no, no. three no, no. list. No, no, I, 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 have, <laughs> I, I have one. I have one. Um, the worst liquor law mm-hmm. is actually a policy decision by Metro Vancouver that stops the SkyTrain running at two a.m. Yeah, it is the number one law that makes our liquor regime, frankly, murderous. Yeah, it's just nonsense because people uh, cannot take the SkyTrain back to their homes, they can't take public transit at when the bars let out. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. if you stay to last call, have to wait around a little bit for your, your tab to be settled up, and try to walk to the SkyTrain station, you're going to find a big fucking metal grate yeah. stopping <laughs> you from getting home. And so, people drive. And ironically, that's a large portion of our business here (laughs) and regrettably so because it does cause significant concerns for community safety Mm -hmm. Um, impaired driving is something that we need to make sure is brought down in terms of numbers and frequency it's a horrible thing uh, to have happen and I agree with you on that Matthew I do think that not providing proper alternatives for people to get home in a safe and sober manner is damaging our communities and it's also hampering liquor reform laws yeah so for me, it's it's zoning. Um, so it comes down to the cities, but it is a it's a city problem, and every city in Lower Mainland uh, has the same issue. It's we essentially say industry here and restaurants here and late night bars here, but not combine the three mm-hmm. with where people live because you go to other cities and what are people doing they're walking to their neighborhood bar maybe not in canada but in other cities look at the u.s it's really effective you can just walk 10 blocks and you will find a bar that you like or find four bars that you like <laughs> so you don't need the sky train when you can actually drink and serve responsibly but when you have this i have to take an hour to vancouver and then an hour back people consume in excess quantities before mm-hmm. they get on the train or they drink on the train. So let's make it more responsible and let's have places, even as far as Dunbar, to increase the number of bars they have for the population they have so that people actually just consume in their neighborhood. Neighborhood bars used to be a source of like where fundraising events would happen, mm-hmm. where people would get to know their neighbors. And now, yeah. yeah, and now you have to essentially go to the entertainment district which is an abysmal place that no one yes. should ever go to. And um, it's a hotbed for crime as yeah. well, I have to say. I mean, the Granville Strip, uh, we mean we constantly have to have um, police officers there Friday through um, Sunday and even more on long weekends, and that's a huge expense for taxpayers. Yeah, Major. And if you were one of those people who were making up that hotbed of crime, please do call Sarah <laughs> <laughs> A very effective and full-throated criminal defense, 604-900-9211. Thank you, Matthew. Absolutely. <laughs> that is a 
perfect article student pitch. <laughs> I have to say that some of the liquor laws that I hate the most um, in Vancouver, well, first of all, is why can't we stand up in restaurants and bars? It drives me bananas. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I go to Toronto and I don't like Toronto. I've been to Toronto many times, but you see people walking around and socializing and talking to one another. Here in Vancouver, if you get out of your seat, if you're not just headed straight to the bathroom and back, you're going to expect to be yelled at by somebody who works there to sit back down. It creates this like very um, pocketed community of people who don't want to actually socialize and engage. So that drives me crazy. People talk about the Seattle freeze or Vancouver's coldness, and mm-hmm. I kind of wonder whether that's an artificial creation of the fact that we're just not allowed to talk to one another mm-hmm. in bars. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's that distinction between liquor primary and then, like, food primary, where, in all honesty, most places that are still liquor primary, like all the bar- all your bars that you go to that aren't nightclubs, are all food primary. Mm-hmm. So that's that idea why you can't sit, because ideally you're eating, not actually drinking when you go to the Fountainhead or somewhere like that. Like, right. it's a problem in the way that we're licensing these, these establishments. Yeah. So here's a toast to the much maligned Cafe Crepe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, they were so good when you were 16. <laughs> they were so good when you... Or, or under 18. I, I mean, like, I, I did so much underage drinking at Cafe Crib. Uh, <laughs> and they were affordable. They were affordable. Well, there you go. You guys um, had it nice because I was up in northern Alberta and we just did it in the woods. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, don't, don't get me wrong. I went to Sandy Beach in Calgary a couple of times, but it's like... <laughs> But it all comes back, again, to this whole idea of prohibition and what, you know, originally was behind it way back in, you know, the early 1900s um, in terms of saying, you know, all liquor is evil and sinful and it's creating social, you know, issues and problems and deep-seated... And to be clear, it was. It, like, it, and it's, Americans were uncommonly drunk. <laughs> yes. But we're hearing the same kind of narrative today around cannabis. And, you know, we created all of these laws around alcohol to try to stop the, you know, public evil of alcohol. And what resulted was that we only drove it further underground. People were still drinking, especially people who were rich and privileged mm-hmm. and had access to illegal alcohol and weren't concerned about being charged by the authorities. You know, and also, very interestingly, the medicinal alcohol prescriptions are being handed out during prohibition. Yeah. I mean, it, there the parallels between the alcohol prohibition in Canada and the cannabis legalization or prohibition in Canada are just so eerily similar. Yeah, and there's this misalignment of safety. So really, I think why we have the laws we have really boils down to a good analogy for Matthew and, and Mai's time when we were at University of British Columbia. We would run multiple events through fraternities and, and student organizations that had special occasion, special event licenses. And we were told multiple times by the RCMP, who are the municipal police force out there, that no, you can't do this, or no, you can't do that. And, and making it really onerous to just throw a party in an event where people are, are being tracked by our bartenders, so they are not overserved, so they are served the right amount, so they're still having a fun time. And instead, this thought that like, oh, if you guys aren't doing this, nobody will be consuming. 
like these people aren't going straight to their Vanier dorms and their totem dorms to like consume in multiple and copious amounts. Mm -hmm. Where were ambulances being called for people who'd consumed too much? It was rarely the parties. They were being called to the beer gardens. They were being called to Vanier and Totem. Exactly, Mm because every organization knew if this happened, they would never get them again. Mm -hmm. So you can create these safe areas, but instead we have this view that, oh no, if we just don't make it available, it won't happen. That's the same approach to cannabis, and it's problematic from the start. Now tell, tell me, Sarah, in your experience as a mm-hmm. criminal defense lawyer, if you prohibit someone from doing them, doing something, does that stop them from doing it? <laughs> oh, let me think about that for a minute. No, absolutely not. In fact, it might encourage them to do it even more. I think I was representing, like, uh, I, I think I had, like, five driving while prohibited cases today. It was just... Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, all the way from, you know, any topic here, it can be explored when it comes to prohibitions, whether it's you're not allowed to drive, you're not allowed to drink, you're not allowed to consume drugs, you're not allowed to pay for sexual services from another adult. People are still going to do it if they want to do it. And <laughs> we can try to limit it, we can try to stop them, but at the end of the day, people do illegal things. So... Like, I feel like this actually boils down to a question about what the philosophy of legislation is. Is it to shape the attitudes of society? Like, is it to regulate, restrict, and control society? Or is it to shape the behavior of society and and take that behavior and direct it in pro-social directions? Like, I feel like people's desire to get fucked up <laughs> uh, is so powerful yeah. <laughs> that it's not going to go away. No, like, no, no. Like, and I mean, it's part of a much larger discussion as well. I think we would be amiss not to mention, you know, the opioid crisis here that's happening all over Canada, but particularly in the Lower Mainland. And, you know, the discussion is extended even to providing um, safe access to um, narcotics like heroin. Right. And so I think that's an important discussion that it ties into also, you know, just by saying, no, you can't do this to people doesn't mean people are just going to stop doing it. No, absolutely. And it, this idea of we're loss averse, we're not like we don't want to make things better. We only want to deal with it after it's a problem. So yeah. if like, for example, cannabis, we wanted the city to actually or the province to move forward and a lot faster on making access a lot easier. It would be fentanyl showing up in illegal pot mm-hmm. and like that would just suddenly drive oh we need to do this to but until that happens people are just gonna say well you know we don't have massive harm so we don't need to do anything we're a harm driven province and it's not a great way to make good public policy it is no. a kind of like ridiculous situation because we are the the incorporated sovereign entity that is furthest from the center of power of the industry that basically caused the prohibition of cannabis and that is Cotton. Uh, <laughs> cotton did not want to compete with hemp. Uh, and also, a lot of the people involved in the cotton industry uh, were, unsurprisingly, very racist. And uh, <laughs> You don't really? say. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, a lot of people involved in the um, ownership and administration of the cotton industry. And that uh, desire to, one, uh, prevent a, a very strong competitor to cotton, especially in terms of textiles, uh, from competing against cotton in the marketplace, and two, a desire to keep uh, black workers 
uh, under the boot of, of white-owned corporations in the American South uh, led to the reefer madness panic of mm -hmm. the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very, very dumb. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is one that I think that BC up until like three years ago could have been very proud of uh, because we, we just basically decided that we were going to ignore the law uh, largely because of a group of Americans who also were ignoring another law, the draft for Vietnam, and the people who were involved in uh, cultivating a lot of marijuana in the United States uh, also dodged the draft and came up to places like Nelson uh, in particular and founded our marijuana industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's again something that we're cycling back to, but we have to remember that these laws that prohibited the use of cannabis, the possession, the sale of cannabis, the cultivation of cannabis, are all deeply rooted in racism and in classism. So it's ironic to see that now we have legal cannabis, but again, who's profiting from it? Well, rich white men. And, yeah. and, to, make a corporate, <laughs> and to make a corporate and capitalist argument against it, it's also anti-competitive. Mm -hmm. Like, if hemp were able to compete against cotton, mm -hmm. and, like, and, and hemp is not psychoactive in the oh, same way no. that, like, cannabis, like, our... Yeah. THC. Absolutely. THC is. Uh, like, the, the THC content in, in hemp is, is negligible. Yeah. Uh, you can probably get more high from eating nutmeg, mm -hmm. uh, which is super gross and don't do it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, like, that, that distinction is, is just, like, people desiring to maintain their own power rather than compete on an even playing field against, like, a superior product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. you've even got that in the liquor industry where you've got Pacific Western Brewing, which is headquartered in Prince George. They sell almost nothing in the province of D.C. because the restrictions are onerous, they don't see the profit margin, so where do they sell? Korea. They're the biggest beer in Korea, brewed in uh, Prince George from German-trained uh, uh, brewers, you wouldn't know that unless you've been there and, and talked to them, but like, it's ridiculous that they don't actually see the economic opportunity here to sell their own product. They have to go elsewhere to see that. And that, that for me, drives it towards a, a sort of ridiculousness. Yeah. It's a wonder that the last premier didn't do anything about that, because <laughs> who owns Pacific Western Brewing? I cannot remember that. Bruce Clark. Mm. You know, Bruce Clark is... Christie's brother. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that little bit of trivia aside, um, why did all our laws seem to be like what? It seems like a bunch of people made wishes for liquor reform, but they made those wishes on a monkey's paw, and somehow <laughs> you got everything you wanted, uh, every to the letter, to the letter of the law. <laughs> but unfortunately, the spirit of the law was not upheld like you just got everything and somehow it made it worse so well before we even get into what makes it worse why don't we talk about the lesser of two evils and our respective verdicts yes on today's tasting selection this is the part where we yeah. decide who we hate less in this case <laughs> it's definitely a hate less it's a hate less today i'm sorry tofino distillery i was really behind you guys but um, she she has been she has been talking about this for like two weeks like very I have, enthusiastically. I was so excited. I I went to Tifino. I loved it. I was like, oh, I've been there and I've seen it and I love flower flavored things and 
Should now I'm just... to the brewery. The brewery's great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, guest of honor, what's your what's the verdict for you? I would say lavender mint is the well, let's call it the sage lavender mint. Oh, that's the that's yeah. the winner for you. Yeah, that's okay, the well for me. I'll pour you another glass and you can just uh, muscle through it. This is such a difficult thing. I know. Okay. Matthew? I'm I'm a little I'm a little up in the air at the moment. I'm gonna I'm gonna see where you come down. I wanna I wanna hear. Oh, okay then. All I'm right, all right. Well, if you're gonna hand it over to me, I think for me it's no question. Um, the rose hibiscus is my favorite. So, um, I actually don't mind the rose hibiscus. I think it's okay. I'll, I'll give it that. <laughs> it's drinkable, and I will I will drink this bottle. You know, even reluctantly. So. There's some cocktails you could add some champagne to that. It would be quite nice. I'm with that. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, saying that either of these would be very good as an ingredient uh, is kind of damning with faint praise. And unfortunately, unfortunately, faint praise is the best that I can offer to either of these these liquors. You're the tiebreaker. Yeah, I'm gonna go. So. My family used to, to cook with a lot of sage, and so I have a little bit of a soft spot for sage, and, and that was just the, the flavor I got. But I'm a big fan of, of hibiscus, and I'm going to go with the reluctantly with the rose hibiscus. So. Oh, that's it. Rose hibiscus is the winner. So or... our, our very <laughs> tentative recommendation our very uh, is the Tofino Brewing's rose hibiscus. Tofino uh, Distillery? Tofino, Tofino Distillery. Yes, sorry. So, congratulations. <laughs> you are the winner in a competition against yourself. So, we're going to start a new little tradition for Spirit of the Law today. Uh, a dumb law. Oh. We're going to end up with a dumb but law. But I thought that's all we were talking about today. <laughs> I mean, we're going to start with dumb laws. We're going to continue through dumb laws. We're going to end with a dumb and very law. Uh, I think that New Brunswick's weed laws have potentially made it worse right. than here. Well, like it, it's truly, it's truly a very like nonsensical. Uh, you have to keep your cannabis in a locked box. Oh, it's like a gun. Oh god. Yeah. I mean, I. Uh, this is the thing. I advocate for anybody who has minors at home, children, especially young children, to keep cannabis in a childproof um, storage container, mm -hmm. whether that's a locked cabinet or a locked box. And the reason for that is because, well, first of all, cannabis consumed in large quantities, particularly edibles that are usually appealing to children, um, can be very damaging to children. And we actually saw a story about that um, come out of somewhere in eastern Canada recently where um, a woman, two very young children, found her edible chocolate bar and ate the entire thing. And the young two-year-old girl ended up going into seizures, had massive brain swelling, and was in a medically induced coma for numerous days. So very scary stuff. And on top of that, the liability that parents and guardians can face under the law and criminal sanctions against them if that occurs um, are pretty severe. So 
I always say it's very, very good and prudent best practice if you're a parent or a guardian or if you think that children could be anywhere in your premises where you do have edibles or cannabis to keep it locked or stored. All right, well, maybe it's not a stupid law after all. <laughs> no, I, I, would, I would disagree because I think it's in line with what we've been talking about today. It's about education mm-hmm. and really encouraging social behavior, not creating a law that punishes for making a mistake. Agreed. I think that at the end of the day, if there is um, fair sharing of information and we're able to talk openly and freely about cannabis, particularly with um, our minors, uh, children of a young age, I think we'll end up normalizing it, destigmatizing it, and Mm -hmm. be able to actually have effective dialogue. And in fact, that's something that I saw that the VPD is encouraging all parents to do now in the Lower Mainland before 420. They put an article out, um, there's an article in the Georgia Strait in which I was actually quoted and then um, VPD did a news release about it as well just today, um, talking about how important it is for parents to talk to children about 420. So it's happening, Great. and your kids need to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I have perhaps another one. The Georgia, uh, the Georgia House has made abandoning cannabis in public a misdemeanor with a possible one-year jail sentence and a thousand dollar fine. Wow. So if you have illegal cannabis, you gotta keep it. <laughs> you gotta eat your roach. Don't drop your roaches when you're visiting Atlanta or Savannah. Maybe you'll be staying for longer than you think. It's like mm. a bad outcast song yes. at this yeah. point. <laughs> or maybe yeah. even Cypress Hill. Yeah. So for those of you who are enjoying the 420 festivities, I hope you have a great time. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Do not token drive. Uh, but if you do... Call Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much, Andrew, for... Uh, Speaking with us today on Spirits of the Law, a podcast for those who are called to the bar. Sarah, thank you. Good night. Cheers. Cheers.